Hello, listeners. I know it's been a long time since the last episode, but I want to assure you that I'm still here and I'm still creating. I'm loving making these podcasts, and I love it when the show leads to real-life conversations about the big ideas. It's taken me 29 years to find work that I really believe in, and I think that single fact speaks volumes about the current state of education. My day job's been frantic. Because of the pandemic, the job of writing, setting and marking A-level exams has been passed on to teachers. Rather than teaching and supporting my students, I've been tasked with judging and grading them. Right now is the time to ask, what are schools for? Are we here to lift everyone up? Or are we here to help universities and employers tell who is worthy and who is not? This is a question that I'll be visiting again and again this season. Today, I speak to my colleague, Yoni Suisa. We both teach maths, but Yoni also teaches philosophy. And in this episode, we will explore utilitarianism. What is utilitarianism? And can we use it to make better decisions about how to run schools? Before we dive in, I'd like to give some background on Yoni. He is the most caring teacher I have ever worked with. So much about our job encourages us to focus on academic outcomes and to prioritise the success of the group over the welfare of the individual. But in the face of this pressure, Yoni has never lost his humanity. His students love him for always being there, always having time for help and never losing patience. On that note, let's go. Hi, Yoni. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So, can you tell me, what is utilitarianism? So, utilitarianism is, it's a word that's kind of used to describe a lot of things today, but classically it was a theory developed by Bentham, and it was practically developed to affect policy change. So, he kind of wanted to affect government and help government implement more fair laws and create more fair laws. And... It relies on the utility principle, which is the idea that you shouldn't only be trying to kind of maximize your own happiness, because naturally, as human beings, we do want to maximize our own happiness, but we should be trying to maximize the most happiness possible for the most people. And for Bentham, happiness was the same as pleasure. For a lot of utilitarians, more modern utilitarians, there's they've kind of said that it's different things. So, for example, Peter Singer talks about happiness being actually your preferences being satisfied but yeah classically it was just about maximizing pleasure minimizing pain and for the most people and i think what a lot of people don't know is that it was only ever intended for government so like to kind of affect these like i guess like it was intended for kind of like institutional reform so it sounds to me like it might be really suited to something like education because this isn't just looking at how to make make decisions as an individual but as an organization how to do the most good for the most people would be a good guide yeah i think it's definitely applicable and and like most of the time when government do use it, it is for these kind of like massive institutions like in the nhs and that's that's the most kind of common commonly cited examples so how in the NHS, how would they use utilitarianism? So it's it's called qualies, which is which stands for quality adjusted life year. And it's this idea that if you're unhealthy, the years you have left are worth less than the years of a healthy person. 
and so they have to they have to use they use this as a measurement to kind of like decide healthcare distributions i guess it's pretty intuitive right i think it's the kind of thing that a lot of people would come up with you know if you've got a certain amount of money you can only buy a certain amount of drugs you'd rather save the healthy people than the people who are going to die anyway yeah and i guess it's also like we often we often talk about number of lives saved but that's perhaps a worse measure than the number of healthy years saved you know if you rescue someone who's on there who's going to die next week anyway that's a lot less of an achievement than saving a child who's got a, a full life ahead of them and isn't sort of i i think of quality as a way of quantifying that mm, totally it yeah yeah it it kind of like um takes the purely it's almost like an improvement on utilitarianism because it's like slightly less focus on quantity and, and trying to make a bit more focus on quality which is actually what um mill does so mill mill comes along and he kind of says that bentham's theory is far too quantity focused um i mean bentham literally when he sets it out he literally gives people these kind of like this kind of like toolkit to perform they call it uh the utility calculus um and you're supposed to kind of like measure the seven different aspects of pleasure within any action and tally up the points but you know mill comes along and says that this is just kind of like way too focused on quantity and actually we should focus a bit more on the quality of the action itself how do you get a numerical value for the quality of an action yeah <laughs> that's really hard and i i'm guessing in the nhs they struggle with that because they, they've got to try and figure out how much is how high is your quality of life if you uh, are alive but you're blind how much does that affect the quality of that year of life? Is it worth as much as a healthy year? Is it worth 80% as much? And someone's got to make that judgment call. You can never claim to have done that accurately, really. Yeah. And and one of the questions that they often ask is, um, have you recently entered this quality of life? Or have, were you born into this quality of life? Um, that's something that a lot of people think makes a big difference. So someone was born with a disability, it it seems quite unfair to say well your quality of life is lower than a than an able person mm. i can imagine mm-hmm. however mm-hmm. you know if whether you have a disability or not uh living in constant pain for example probably would represent a lower quality of life so you would take that into into consideration i think this idea of quality in medicine is really exciting because there are, I imagine, so many fraught decisions to make in healthcare when you've got limited resources and a lot of problems that you have to solve because it can take emotion out of those decisions and help you make those decisions more rationally, which is good. It takes kind of the burden off the decision makers. But what I've been learning about recently is there's still a lot of emotion in those decisions. For example, you know, the whole idea of qualities enables NHS to, to put a price on one year of high quality life i think it's 30 something thousand pounds however 10 years ago in 2011 david cameron set up the cancer drugs fund and that the sole purpose of that fund was to pay for drugs which the nhs have deemed not worth it Mm. and that's because people don't like that idea of well it's not worth helping you because it's too expensive we we could do more Mm. for other people with that money Mm-hmm. And that annoys me because it's essentially like we came up with a really rigorous system for helping the most people with the resources we have. Mm-hmm. And then we've just subverted it because it makes us feel better. I am annoyed because I think we've basically decided if we can help the most people with our resources, if we follow this structure. 
and to subvert that structure is implicitly letting other people die or lose quality quality years and so so do you think it was because of the kind of like highly emotive reaction to just like cancer and you know the fact that most people have a personal connection to it absolutely i was going to say most people know someone who's had cancer or died from cancer so it is for many people it's a, it's an emotional subject and i think that's why you see so many people running marathons for cancer research um you know as a country we do give a lot of money to research into new treatments so i think that for me that's an example of emotion getting into the way you know you know we we perhaps don't take into consideration that to 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 save a life using cancer research it might cost millions whereas right now we could give to give money to poor countries development in poor countries and save a life for thousands but we most people don't consider that what makes you uncomfortable is that like who was it was it david cameron yeah kind of i guess just like compromise the whole utilitarianism system well I'm thinking of a few things here. So uh, the first thing is you could you could actually justify what David Cameron's done under the utilitarianism framework still. Because so Bentham, he has these seven measures of what makes an action pleasurable. If you if you want to think about that action of funding lots of cancer research treatment, then actually when you consider one of the measures, which is the extent of which how many people it affects, it should be pretty great just because of how many people do care about cancer treatment so if you're making few people feel better because they feel listened to and they feel like something they care about is being done that actually counts exactly and and in a way like the nhs money it shouldn't only be there to treat the sick now some of it should also be there to prevent the sick getting sicker in the future and in that sense you could really think about like the sheer number of people who are going to catch cancer in their lives in the future I guess there are other cases where you want to make exceptions. So, for example, we've got um, Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe is a British citizen who's imprisoned in Iran. And they're mm-hmm. essentially, I mean, this is a simplification, but they're essentially saying, we're going to keep you in prison until you pay us the 400 million for the tanks that you owe us. Mm-hmm. And so the government probably is considering spending hundreds of millions to to free one person and to prevent mm-hmm. maybe a few other people in future from being mm-hmm. imprisoned. So obviously that's a, a lot more than what they would say a life is worth according to the NHS, but there's also a, there's a symbolic element to it. And there's political forces behind it because a lot of people will be following that story. And I, again, this is me being cynical, but I think probably it was mainly political forces behind the Cancer Drugs Fund because essentially now, depending on your, depending on your outlook, you can choose to look at the Cancer Drugs Fund and think, great, our government cares about cancer, or you could look at this whole principle of qualies and the NHS putting a price on, on a year of life and think, great, our National Health Service is making rational decisions. You can look at either system and see what you want to see. So in a, politically, it probably does work well. Yeah. The, the example we just looked at is nice because we've got a clear sense of what, what we have to gain, the pleasure, which is extra years of high-quality life, and we've got quite a measurable pain or cost because it's like we can just assume it's mainly financial. So we're basically measuring life against money, which has its own difficulties, but it's relatively doable. In education, what are we fighting for? What's the pleasure mm. and what's the pain? 
So in education, there is this sense in which, okay, so with the NHS, the government and the people seem to be agreed that like the measure is health. And I think there's like a broad consensus in education when you're educating students, the main focus is on like a development of skills and knowledge. You know, like most people agree that like students are going into school so that they can leave as more functioning members of society than they were when they were six years old. I guess like it's, it is, I was going to say it's different to healthcare, but I think it is similar to healthcare in that it's not, it's not one dimensional. It's not like distinct. You can't just focus on these things in the same way that you can't just focus on somebody's health on its own right like because the health is related to their mood it's related to their environment it's related to their values and all these things are going to tie into each other in the same way that they will do in education so it's going to be extremely difficult to have an objective measure of how someone's done and we haven't even found out necessarily what the desirable feature is are we are we looking for for students to leave school as happy people? Is that the main thing? Or do we want them to be economically productive? Wouldn't that be good if, if we were just looking to, for them to leave school happy? Well, what if they couldn't read but they were happy? They, they'd be hungry very soon. I guess, yeah. I mean, I mean like, yeah, it suggests that like happiness is something that they you can just like achieve and then, and then be done with. And then you're like, okay, great, I'm a happy person now, which I don't think is true. Um, hmm. Yeah, you're you're right. We don't want we want them to leave with like, um. Yeah, we want them to leave and, and be able to be independent and and survive out there. So in some senses, that depends on how much infrastructure the state already has. Actually, because if you've got a state with a lot of kind of like, like welfare, yeah. If you've got a state with a lot of welfare systems, good welfare systems, then. I guess you'd be less worried about kids leaving school and becoming homeless and jobless and well I think our culture definitely doesn't value worklessness even if you have got a safety net I think we think someone's not happy unless they are in control of their life and part of that control is being financially independent so obviously being destitute being hungry and and unwell is is the worst probably the worst outcome and yes if we have a welfare system that works hopefully no one will have those problems but i think that's like a pretty bare minimum we'd rather people left school feeling in control of their destiny and with the tools to succeed mm. yeah do you think you left school feeling in control of your destiny um no i don't think i left school with everything i perhaps needed um but then my school it gave me a very competitive outlook on life. I've kind of felt like as long as I was doing better than most people educationally, it was going to be okay. And that is a pretty messed up attitude because that implies that the people on the bottom have to fail to make everyone else feel better. And, well, I think before we, we go on, we can we can kind of get one example out of the way, which is the financial element because you could simply boil everything down to money and say well education has a financial cost which is well known and we can make an estimate of the financial benefits of education we can we can sort of say well by by educating you we have added value to you and enabled you to make more money throughout your lifetime so we can do some sort of calculation to think whether school is a good investment in someone economically um, and that, that's probably easier than any other prism of looking at this. However, 
there would obviously be big problems to educating just in the name of making people more productive. I mean, school would essentially be job training mm. and we wouldn't have any concern for like the child's well-being. We're just measuring how well paid of a job can you get at the end. It, why wouldn't we have any concern? I think eventually we, we might actually start to, you know, like the initial blueprint might look horrific. But eventually you'd realise that actually for a student to leave in a position where they can kind of get these really high paying jobs, they'll need to be secure in themselves. They'll need to be confident. They'll need to be able to care for themselves. They'll need to have soft skills. They'll need to be able to deal with rejection well. If they're going to go out there and apply to all these like highly competitive finance jobs, let's say. And so I think eventually we'd realise we'd realize after the few trial runs that actually even if we do just want them to leave school and earn the most money possible it might end up pretty similar to the system we have now to be honest yeah i was going to sort of say that i think politicians often do talk about work school prepares you for work even head teachers are sort of like yeah we have this uniform because we want you to look professional just like you would at work school kind of is often framed as preparation for the workplace I like the fact that you're optimistic, though, and you sort of say, well, preparing kids to be financially successful should go hand in hand with their actual well-being. Uh, I've never really thought that. I'm maybe not as optimistic. And I think we often, as a society, we, we try and nurture the economy in the hope that that will mean that we're all happy. We make big sacrifices as a community um, to prop up the economy. You know, austerity, for example, was all about getting the country on a better financial footing. Even recently with um, coronavirus, right? Just like the, f- the whole the whole kind of like first wave could have been avoided, right? If we weren't so obsessed with keeping the economy going. Yeah. And we so we've got this with really ingrained now sense that we need to look after the economy first and the economy will look after the people. And I think there's obviously a big movement to reconsider that and maybe start with the people and think, okay, yeah, what kind of economy do we need to help everyone? And there are some countries who've done that. So I think it was Bhutan first and more recently New Zealand who started to measure their own success on some sort of happiness index. And they've they've tried to calculate people's happiness and they're looking to maximise that, not GDP, which I think is really interesting. And I think you could also try to apply that to schools. Although, as we said earlier, just being happy on graduation isn't maybe the best measure. And I would, perhaps, I would perhaps kind of break it into two. I think a good education for children is one which gives them a happy childhood and a happy future. And I think you have to have both. And by happy, I don't just mean being in a good mood all the time, I guess. I mean, yeah. well, what do we mean? Well, yeah, I mean, like, being in a good mood all the time is actually a pretty good measure of happiness, I think. But it's an unrealistic one. So... What what you just said actually about dividing it into two, so like enjoying childhood and being happy in the moment of childhood, but also thinking about their future and making sure that they'll be happy as an adult is a kind of classic trade-off that we're having to make a lot of the time. Um, I mean, essentially, that's what your life is as a parent. It's being paternalistic to your children is it's kind of like taking away their rights to do things and be happy in the moment in the interest of their happiness in the future. So how can we measure the happiness uh, of a child or the happiness of childhood so 
you can look at kind of like lots of different measures that Bentham would use. So one is like how long the happiness would last. Um, another is how intense the happiness would be. Um, but two measures that I really like are called the purity and the fecundity. So the purity of the happiness would be the extent to which it is really just happiness. So something like for, for an adult, something like taking drugs wouldn't be such a pure form of pleasure because there would often be a massive come down associated with it. Um, and there's a lot of pain, it's like the happiness tends to cause pain. So that's one thing to consider. And then the fecundity of the action is is the kind of flip side of that. Well, to what extent does this happiness cause more happiness itself? So something like reading a book might be pleasurable in the moment and it causes more pleasure later on because you kind of it gives you more things to think about and talk about which cause pleasure. So with kids, I mean, they so rarely engage in in things which have a high fecundity. Hmm. I think I think so many of the actions are just pleasure in the moment without a tendency to produce more pleasure later on. Yeah. And maybe that's what we want to be doing in schools. We want to be giving th- them things that are pleasurable in the moment, but crucially that are also going to give them pleasure and happiness later on. Which I think is really what education is. I think that's really what learning is. It's something that should be enjoyable when you're doing it. And when you've left the classroom, it should still give you some sort of pleasure. I mean, what about play? Kids clearly love to play, and that's clearly built into childhood. Um, And arguably, it's the main way in which young children especially learn. I would like to think that that's something with high fecundity. It's fun to play, and you learn. You can imagine a four or five-year-old playing in the sandpit with some toys, and they're building a castle with each other, and that's that kind of role play can be highly educational. Children don't realize they're learning, but it doesn't matter. So they're kind of happy now and hopefully building skills for a happy future. What I'm really interested in is freedom because as adults, we sort of take it for granted that to be happy, we need to be free to make our own decisions. Uh, We wanna be free from restrictions to where we can go, free from other kind of restrictions like being in debt And as a society, the worst punishment that we allow is taking away someone's freedom, putting them in prison. And yet, when it comes to childhood, we don't we don't seem to value children's freedom very highly. It's taken for granted that all children must go to school on every school day. So if you do value children's freedom, that's quite a big cost. So if children really do love freedom, then we're causing them pain in the name of future pleasure and even within a school we kind of do this even more if you don't work you're going to go to detention so why is it so different why is there a separate standard for children we do something which we would never do for adults we restrict their freedom in the name of helping them long term and perhaps separately is it justified is it true that without restricting their freedom children would just run wild and they would be unhappy as adults because they wouldn't have learnt enough Mm. yeah i mean it's a really good question there's a certain kind of like stage at which you know you have to restrict a child's freedom i think you know like everyone would agree that up until they're able to speak maybe you know like with a toddler there's certain actions that you take for their for their own safety 
and I think most people agree that that's kind of justified. So you know, when we when we don't allow children to drive when they're seven years old, I don't think anyone's going to argue against that. But well, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> maybe that is arbitrary. Maybe it's just because the cars are too big. Maybe if we just had some scaled down children cars, <laughs> it wouldn't actually be a problem. Well, they'd certainly learn a lot of independence if they could drive around. There'd be some sort of benefit. But yes, I think most people would agree that that's a sensible precaution. So, so yeah, I think we, you know, and that's something that the state does on adults as well. You know, we we actually are, to an extent, most people comfortable with the state being paternalistic towards us, limiting our freedoms when we know it's in the interest of our safety. Like with COVID, most people were actually, you know, like it's not great being imprisoned, but most people were we're fine with the restrictions so yeah so safety is one thing but then once you've once you've kind of discarded that what's left why else might you limit a child's freedom i guess it's this idea of like wanting them to be happy and when they're older hmm. i think there is something in in a way there's something utilitarian about it because as a teacher if you imagine being able to say in your classroom look if anyone doesn't want to be here you can go There'll be no consequences. If you don't, if you're not interested, you can just go. And what would happen is some students would stay, the ones who were really interested and wanted to learn, or perhaps they weren't interested, but they realized this was for their own long-term good and they would choose to stay. And some children would choose to go. And let's take maths, maths for example. So some children just wouldn't learn maths. And we see that as a problem in a utilitarian mindset because we've made this assumption that everyone should know some level of maths is for their own good so you're letting some people take a really big hit to their future by not knowing maths and that's quite a lot of quality times quite a lot of quantity so you could argue that you know letting kids choose what they want to do giving them their freedom would be great for the kids that can handle it and be catastrophic for those that can't and so you perhaps wouldn't allow that in a utilitarian mindset because it's not doing enough for enough people. Yeah, definitely. Going back to fecundity, though, I think we are we are missing something big here because, yeah, if if tomorrow if we said in school, you know what, kids, lessons are optional from now on, that probably would lead to a lot of kids learning a lot less. But that's very short-term thinking. What if we had a whole different approach to children and what if we started trusting them a lot more? from the very beginning of their lives i think they would have they would be very different people and they would be a lot better at making their own decisions than they currently are right now children don't have to make any decisions so it's reasonable to imagine if we suddenly let them choose everything they wouldn't make great choices but if from the beginning we treated them with a little bit more trust perhaps restricting their freedom all the time wouldn't be necessary yeah um because I think I think what utilitarianism misses is exactly this idea that like what matters to us as humans is relationships with other people and like meaningful relationships. And just because we've stopped forcing students to do a certain thing, it doesn't mean that we've stopped caring about their future. It doesn't mean that we don't still want them to go to our maths lessons. And crucially, it doesn't mean that we're not going to stop trying to get them to go to our maths lessons. I'm not going to just kind of like be super passive about it if a student isn't turning up to my lessons three weeks in a row mm. and by engaging them in the conversations um, around why they're not going and why I think they should go 
they'll, they'll their kind of desire to go to the lesson will eventually, if it does come up, be so much more meaningful than them just being forced to go. And this is what you see with homeschooling students. Yes, they weren't forced to do anything by an adult, but they end up they end up doing a lot of the same things that non homeschool students do. But they've kind of they kind of see they really believe the good of it because they've engaged in these conversations with lots of adults in a meaningful way, which kids in school never do. Most kids don't even see at, um, teachers as human beings, let alone other adults that they could talk to and express their opinions and desires to. I think that's massive. I think that, you know, according to our own system of measurement in, in education, which is exams, people can do really well on paper, and yet they could never have had that experience of learning something because they really believe in it learning something because they really want to and I've, I've had a lot of these conversations recently with friends and most of my friends you know have are on paper educational success stories they've done well in school they've gone to university and all that but so many of them essentially say you know I finished my degree and I didn't know what I was interested in I honestly didn't know what I actually cared about and I didn't know how to learn something they essentially had chosen the thing they were best at in school, pursued that at university, done well, but they, they'd never really had to think, wait, if no one forced me, what would I actually be interested in learning? Exactly. And, and you know, you have glimpses of students doing that in their school career. Maybe sometimes in year nine, they have like one intense week where they have to think about what they'll do for their GCSEs. But, you know, they're never kind of like really encouraged to think about that throughout their time at school. And if they are, it's impossible to do it genuinely because they know that they're just being forced to do things anyway. And then, you know, like sixth formers, they do have a bit of time to think about what they want to do. But it's not enough time. It's kind of like it's superficial. I mean, for me, learning about homeschooling recently, one of my biggest uh, concerns about homeschooling was that students end up specialising too early. You know, if their parent who's helping them learn doesn't know anything about maths, they could give up maths at the age of 12. And I always thought that's very unfair because you're taking away options from the child. But I'm not so sure anymore. I think, you know, if a child really does have a choice in what to learn, then they have time to think about it. They have time to consider what, what am I interested in and what do I want to follow? And then it doesn't seem so bad when you stop learning something at age of 12 because you're making a clear-headed decision. Whereas in school, if you never tell someone, if you never give someone a choice then saying you've got to drop four subjects when you're 14 does seem a bit harsh because they've never really had a chance to consider what they care about. And so I used to be more on the side of I prefer the US system where every student learns more or less everything until the end of school. But now I think that fails too because it never gives children a, a, a moment where it's like, hey, in this time, you choose what you learn. Mm -hmm. You decide what's important. Yeah. We're obsessed with this like well-rounded jack-of-all-trades idea. We don't want to close any doors to them. But that stops that stops people like being able to really explore something that they love and are passionate about. And it and it often kills that passion. You know, like I've, if you imagine the year seven student who's just come into school and they're absolutely massive maths whiz. You know, like for so many students who are top of their class like that or love reading, they it just gets killed because suddenly they're in a room where one person doesn't even want to be in the room. And it's also this obsession we have with like controlling students and just wanting to control our kids' futures so much so that we're telling them what we think will make them happy, really. We're telling them that 
no, no, one day you might actually be happy that you can be an accountant and you've done maths A-level. Mm. I think we're guilty of that as as an institution, but also as parents. You know, even the often the most well-meaning parents end up becoming helicopter parents, booking up children every evening. You've got all these um, nourishing activities they've got to do, music lessons, tutoring, sports, all because it's like, well, this is going to help you get into university. This is going to make you a well-rounded, good person. And we can often be guilty of just not seeing the child, not giving them any space to be themselves. You know, this can be linked to the, the mental health crisis that we're having now. Children are feeling less in control of their lives. They feel like they're on a treadmill and they've just got to keep up. And that, that can lead to a real lack of sense of self and sense of self-efficacy. And that can be linked to depression and, and mental health problems. It could be that we're, yeah, we're controlling children so much, we'd never give them a chance to learn how to be a person. They just see themselves as a cog in a wheel. Which is a terrible way to feel. It's, it's not human. Well, and the, and the thing about schools, you know, so going back to schools, we, you know, we're trying to construct schools essentially where no one can fail, where we, we don't leave anyone behind, which is awesome. But we've taken that level of controls to such an extent that we're basically saying to students, do what we tell you, otherwise you, you will fail. And when students do have moments of failure, the only person they have to blame is themselves. And that can be really damaging because once you've lost that sense of self-belief and self-worth, that really hits you. And to have that in childhood is really sad. So we don't have a system which appreciates every individual for who they are. Mm. And I think the the system that we have also... The system doesn't appreciate every child for who we are, but what often you get is teachers really trying to, and, you know, like, teachers, instinctively, they do. And that's what makes teaching so incredibly hard today that I find I find myself, I'm always battling that system, which is, like, preventing me from getting to know the children as individuals and, and like, treating them as individuals. Um, yeah, it's it's just, like, a really big battle that you've got as a, as a teacher. Hmm. Um which is why I think um, it kind of links to like the broader criticism of utilitarianism, which is that it doesn't allow people to like trust and use their instinct. It forces you to be highly rational and like unemotive. Um, there's a really nice um, Bernard Williams talks about a lifeboat example where um, the classic kind of thought experiment is that you're on a ship and it's sinking and you've just been given a lifeboat and you can take two other people with you. One person is a doctor and they're about to find a cure for cancer and the other person is your elderly mother. And he doesn't try and comment on what the right thing to do is, but he says that this, the moment you stop to think about what the rationally right person to take is, that is just one thought too many. And you, you've, you've, you are no longer a good person by making that thought. And I think there's a similar idea in education that like as soon as we even start to ask certain questions, we are becoming bad people and we are becoming bad teachers because we're completely like misframing the whole system when we ask these questions like when you ask these like highly utilitarian questions in education. Well, how about, for example, if there's one disruptive child in your lesson, which is hurting the learning of everyone else? Exactly. Should should we just expel them for the greater exactly. good? Exactly. Or should we 
drop art should we slash art because only two students are taking it at a university let's say and i think yeah these kind of questions are so are so grim because they go against our intuition that people are individuals hmm. and everyone everyone should be valued hmm. and you get all these schools who have these slogans it's almost like the, the schools that are the most extreme in their kind of like utilitarian approach of like they have one measure mm. and they're trying to maximize that measure. They also often have these like slogans that like every child matters and all these things that mm. so contradictory. Yeah. <laughs> it's really nice to have a, a check on utilitarianism because I've, you know, I always end up thinking, yes, we could make this work with utilitarianism. Just need to get the right frame. We need to start figuring out what the what the rate what the benefits are that we care about, and I'm still kind of stuck on this idea of freedom as well because I, I've got this inherent feeling that we need to give students more freedom. We need to trust them more, and let them learn what they want to learn in the way they want to learn it. But on the other hand, you know, we we teach in a school where a lot of children come from disadvantaged backgrounds. They don't get a good nourishing educational environment at home. And really school is the main source of everything for them. It's the it's main source of learning, relationships, nurturing. And so we've got a big responsibility. If we suddenly handed them loads of freedom, they might not have learned the skills at home to, to do that. They might not have the the stuff at home to learn. They might have picked up bad social habits at home so perhaps the, the the children who most need help may be the least prepared for freedom to learn so um i get stuck on this idea that the vision for education which i'm start, starting to form which involves children being a lot more free is sort of a middle class vision that's going to benefit children who already have a a good home life and really hurt those who don't but i think the reason that would happen is that we don't often draw a distinction between what students are learning and what they've learnt and you know there's an obsession with what students have learnt you know like a, a high paying job will look for a student who has learnt lots of things or has learnt the right things or has learnt the right things at the right time um, rather than focus on like how a student actually learns so I think you're right in the current system where you know you need to get an A star in maths to become an investment banker it's incredibly unfair that we would let a student completely drop maths in year nine, let's say, or not even try and take the A-level. Because, yeah, you're right, middle-class families would... Well, I don't know what it is, but, but I think students from middle-class families would maybe have more pressures on them to do... I don't know, what do you think it is that like means that middle-class students are more likely to go to lessons? I'm not necessarily sure if that's even true, actually. I mean, going back to our school, we have a, we may have a working class population, but it's largely an immigrant population whose families really value education and the parents really expect their children to study hard and, and succeed and, and strive. So perhaps maybe there would be a lot of children choosing to go to lessons. But I also think there's a sense of what do children do when they're not in school? And I think middle-class parents are almost obsessed with making sure their children are always learning. Whereas, this is, of course, generalising hugely, but the working-class uh, mindset is more to be sort of natural growth parenting, which is essentially just let the kids get on with it and they'll grow up naturally, you know, as long as there's not no, no trouble coming from school. 
um, just let them let them do what they want and expect them to behave. And that's that's not going to teach them how to play the violin. So it depends on what you value, because that that natural growth parenting can really help children develop uh, independence in a way which mollycoddled children wouldn't. So I think there's there's definitely different ways in which children of different backgrounds are prepared for more freedom. I think it's only a problem because the current system it, it ranks them in a certain way. I, I I think like you could still have a system that ranks students, but the current system ranks students in a way that would benefit people who have got parents who are, are very proactive and involved rather than parents who are passive and I think that's what's wrong yeah yeah and you were saying something about we we care a lot about what people know not about their capacity for growth and I think that's really powerful because you know you you know your class of students if you were a ceo and you had to hire one of them you wouldn't necessarily hire the one with the highest exam grades you know who's got the best attitude you know who's who's the best um at teamwork you know who's the person who could really teach themselves something you know who's got the most commitment and drive and that very rarely it doesn't necessarily correlate closely with exam performance so we are yeah we are obsessed with what you've proved about yourself and less about your ability to grow and in, and at the same time of course in schools we're obsessed with making sure students can prove themselves in the exam not that we we turn them into someone who can learn and adapt our school school 21 says it's all about preparing kids for the 21st century so perhaps it's more about the the skills that you need in a modern modern world and modern workplace which is great that's better than teaching people classics in my opinion and, and outdated knowledge which isn't so important however i would argue there's so much uncertainty about the future that all the only thing we can really do to prepare students is make them adaptable people mm. and give them the skills to adapt to a changing world mm. and um i just think that like being institutionalized from the age of six is a surefire way to like destroy any kind of like adaptability yeah they'll never have needed to adapt mm. in a in a genuine real way yeah school makes you think that the world is just a, a ladder which is slowly climbing up a structure that you just have to move up within and there's so little opportunity for making decisions and freedom that you neglect that part of yourself yeah, I mean, like, in, in in when you leave school, if you wanted to, when you're 40, you can go back to university and restudy. Why can't you, as a GCSE student, go back to year five and learn the uh, water cycle? I don't know, like, <laughs> there's, no, there's no idea of, like, that fluidity of moving between sections of school. Mm. I would love to go back to just, like, any year in school, but especially those younger years of, like, when there's no pressure from the teacher for an exam and you're learning these big ideas from scratch so Johnny to summarise do you think that utilitarianism is a useful way of thinking about education and if so how would you use it as much as it's got its flaws basically I like what Bentham did because he really hit the nail on the head with some of the reasons why we think an action is good you know sometimes we think an action is good because it's more intense than another action Sometimes we think an action is good because it lasts longer than another action. Sometimes we think an action is good because it's more guaranteed, it's more certain than another action. Um, 
sometimes what matters is how far away it is in time or how close it is, like when will it happen. Um, this idea of fecundity and purity that we talked about and the extent of the action, so like what are the knock-on effects. Now, what I don't like is that it focuses on the actual outcome rather than the action itself. But I think those are all really important measures to think about. So the the biggest one is this idea of like just certainty, I think, for me. And if we take that to education and schools, we often choose actions as if we are certain of their outcome and their effect on the student when they're just completely not. That's that's what I like about Bentham, that these kind of seven steps can be used in different contexts. And in education, this certainty one is a really useful one to think about. You know, forcing a, a student to do maths for five years when they hate it is not going to guarantee that they're going to be more financially independent when they're older. It might actually just guarantee that they'll have mental health problems because they've been in a bottom set maths class being essentially tortured for five years of their life. It might just completely give them crippling self-confidence issues when they're older. So I think Bentham's good because he really hits the head upon like the complexities of what, what makes something a good action or not. Thanks, Johnny. That was an amazing summary. And I think we could talk about this for far, far longer. For me, perhaps what I'm going to take away is that, obviously, economic reward isn't the main measure of how successful your education has been. But we don't necessarily have, a, uh, as, a, as a community, we don't have a viable alternative. We haven't really decided what education is for. And so we can't really begin to, to measure whether we've achieved that goal. So what I'd like to do is figure out what, what is the desirable outcome of education and then work from there. How can we measure it and how can we achieve it? I think, yeah. And any ideas? <laughs> Maybe we could start with adults and find out who's a happy adult and try and figure out what qualities do they have which make them happy. Do you think there's a certain danger in measuring it inherently? As in, like, the second you start to measure it, it's already, like, a really dangerous place to be because what you're trying to do is reduce something incredibly complex to a single measurable thing. Yeah, I think it's pretty dangerous. <laughs> Eventually you can end up in the same place we're at now where you're you're just ticking boxes so that you can meet your happiness quota. But to make decisions quickly or easily or objectively, don't you need to boil things down to... A simple measure? Yes, but why do we need to make them quickly and objectively and effectively? Hmm. Why does the government need to make these decisions? They don't They don't really, if they trust the adults running the schools. I think that's a good point. I guess I would say so that to take emotion out of decision-making or to take prejudice out of decision-making, you need a, f a framework. But maybe that's not true. Maybe maybe we need more trust in that in that realm as well. Right, Yoni, thank you so much for today. I'm going to ask you one more thing before we finish. If there was one thing you could change about education, what would it be? I'd make people consider the relationships in schools when they make decisions about schools. You know, like it would be nice if the government thought about the kind of relationship that a math teacher is going to have with their students if the math teacher is having to stand at the front and always justify the compulsion of the subject to them and how damaging that could be. Um, on like a more internal level, like I wish that some of the SLT, when they're making decisions about like what we have to do with our coaching groups, for example, which is um, essentially like, you know, like the more pastoral side of school, how is it going to affect 
meaningful relationships that we've built with our students when we're suddenly having to become this cold teacher that's suddenly like that's just having to do things and you know that moment when we have to stand in front of the students they know that we don't agree with what we're having to do but we're still doing it is just incredibly uncomfortable and damaging i think great honey thank you that's really nice food for thought thanks for today it's a good start to my sunday morning thank you That was Yoni Suisa, my colleague from School 21. We really only scratched the surface today. We could have explored how utilitarian the school system currently is. In the UK, public spending on schools is very well understood, as are exam results, and the government uses these data to decide which schools are adding the most value. That's all very well, but exam results are not the only goal of education, and the costs of putting children through school are not only financial. Yoni and I didn't come up with a better system, but Yoni did suggest that there's an inherent danger engaging school success using a single measure. Whether we use exam grades, earning power, or a happiness index to measure the success of our schools, it will always lead to institutions focusing on that measure rather than the growth of the child. Furthermore, there is something distasteful about assigning each student a score as if a human being could be summarised with a single number. I'd like to mention a couple of books that have changed my thinking recently. After my home education episode with Joe, I read Free to Learn by Peter Gray. What a revolutionary book. Gray argues that all children are born curious about the world and that all too often schools kill that curiosity. We've become terrified of our children falling behind or getting hurt and so we tried to control them. But this control has chilling effects on their development. In the book, he describes Sudbury schools, a special type of school where the children make the rules and the children decide what to learn. If Gray is right, it means that education has been driving down a dead-end street for decades. You might not agree with him, but you should read Free to Learn before you make up your mind. Another book which moved me was The Tyranny of Merit by the philosopher Michael Sandel. Promoting equality of opportunity has unified leaders across the political spectrum. But Sandel argues that meritocracy makes the winners feel they deserve the power and privilege they have over the less fortunate. He advocates for a society in which everyone who works has dignity. The book has implications for education that I'm still chewing over, including that universities should be less selective. For one thing, our universities are judged primarily on their exclusivity, not the quality of their education. Most of the places go to those born into privilege, and yet the graduates tend to believe that they deserve the prestige that comes with their degree. If we could build more randomness into the allocation of places, for example with a lottery, it would better reflect the truth that worldly success is largely the result of chance. I'll be back soon with a new guest. Thanks for listening and keep on learning.